or believed wrongly about some things that Scripture doesn't teach us. And uh, Lord, help us to walk in truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. Today we begin a four-week Bible study and to see what the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit. Today we're going to be looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The four, ch- four different studies are going to follow as this. So this week, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in the three weeks to follow, we're going to look at first, the in, in, the, in, in this next week, we're going to look at the indwelling and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at the empowering and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and lastly, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So again, today, if you're taking notes, the person in the work of the Holy Spirit, um, uh, and then in three weeks that follow, the indwelling in the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the empowering and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and then lastly, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And before we begin, I want to give a little context. This is why it's going to take a little bit of length this morning. In Joel chapter chapter 2, we're going to be reading from a prophecy in verses 28 and 29. But I want to give a little context. I think context is important whenever we come to the Word of God, because if not, um, if someone's not willing to teach the truth, or as uh, or is even maybe isn't doesn't have we're trying to teach something and they don't know a whole lot about it. Brandon, can you start the? Can you guys start the timer? I do want to know where I'm at just a little bit. Mostly, I guess it doesn't matter. I'm gonna. It's, it's gonna happen. So I don't want to say. Um, <laughs> Just lied to myself. <laughs> um, but without proper context, we can get off track really easy. I mean, you've heard people do it before. They take something that God's Word says out of context and says, God said this. When you go back and you look, that's not at all what God's Word said, right? And I don't want to do that. So a little context for the book of Joel. And to begin with, we should know that Joel was a prophet, okay? He's technically one of the minor prophets, um, the, he was a prophet to the nation of Israel at a time when the nation was divided into two kingdoms. Joel was specifically sent to prophesy um, the words of God to the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, We don't know for sure, but it looks like Joel would have been a prophet during the reign of King Joash, who was the eighth king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he reigned, Joash reigned, from 837 B.C. to 800 B.C., so about 37 years. And by the time that Joel had come on the scene, both the northern and the southern kingdoms of the nation of Israel had wholeheartedly turned their backs against God and were worshiping false gods of the nations around them, the pagan people around them. And, and they had been doing so at this time for many of years, many, many years. And in light of this, God had warned his people through his prophets who would even come before Joel to repent, to turn away from their, their idolatry, from their worship of these other gods to avoid the judgment that would to come. And at times, what we know as you study out that that portion of the history of the nation of Israel is that under the leadership of a godly king, there would be these times of repentance where they would tear down the altars, right, and, and of these false gods and forsake the worship of them. But these times of revival were short-lived and never heartfelt. That's the key. Their hearts were never turned to the Lord. And as soon as a good king died, we know that an evil king would would, would take over and the people again would turn their backs on God, return to their idolatry, in return to their pagan worship. <clears throat> and during, these, during the, the worship of these false gods, 
You know, this is not something that was just a, a, a little something of nothing. It was a big deal because the people would do things that were an abomination in the eyes of God, an abomination to God in their acts of worship, such as sacrificing their children on the altars of some of these false gods, and then engaging in all kinds of sexual immoral um, acts. And so God, who was incredibly gracious, God, who was incredibly long-suffering, had been enduring with his disobedient and rebellious children for many years when the word of the Lord came to Joel. Okay, that's the stage for what we read in the book of Joel. And as Joel recalls and calls attention to a, a plague of locusts that had come upon the southern kingdom of Israel and devastated their land and brought forth a terrible famine, Joel, with that having happened, calls the people to repent to give their hearts back to God. And he even says stuff, and you guys are familiar with some of these passages, he says that God will be able to restore the years that the locust has eaten. And, and, and that's not figurative. Joel's literally speaking of a, of a specific event and saying, if you repent, God can restore that. And so what we know is that they did not repent. They did not listen to the words of Joel. And God, through Joel, um, spoke of a future judgment that would come. And um, the southern kingdom of Israel, ultimately what we know, followed the path of the northern kingdom of Israel. Northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And then years after that, um, we know that the southern kingdom were, was also taken captive, this time by the Babylonians and taken in chains out of the promised land. Now, the book of Joel, just for your own learning this morning, serves a threefold purpose, and it helps to set the stage for what we're even reading and studying about this morning. It's first seen as a book of history, right? It's a book of, of, of the words that Joel spoke. It's a book that contains the words that Joel spoke to the children of Israel. And we look back on it, and it's a historical account that conveys a warning from God to his kids whose hearts had strayed far from it and calls them to consider what happened, why it happened, and to turn their backs and why they turned their backs on God. And so it served not only as a book of history for us, but also for the future generations of the nation of Israel who came down after these events took place. The second purpose is seen as future, okay? As the word of the Lord in the book of Joel also contained details about future prophecies that have yet to come to pass. Um, some of the language there uh, that speaks of it and, and gives us some idea of it is this telling of a coming of the day of judgment. And it's also mentioned in other parts of the Bible. It's also referred to as the day of the Lord. But in the book of Joel, there is also a prophesied promise about the restoration of the nation of Israel. And, and that was significant at that time. And God promised to his people, even though he knew they would disobey him, even though he knew they would be taken out of the land, we know that God promised to bring them back. There was a time. And then in the book of Jeremiah, we know how many years that time of captivity would last. And the book of Daniel ties into all of these events that we're reading about. And it was, it was after they had been disciplined for their rebellion. And it included this, this futuristic promise or these promises uh, of futuristic events that would take place also contains a promise in Joel chapter 2, where we're going to be at this morning, verses 28 and 29, where God promised to pour out his spirit on all flesh. 
the outpouring of God's Spirit. And it's with this prophesied promise that we are going to look at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling and baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. All of those titles, all of those topics tie back to this prophecy. And I believe that these things are important to our Christian faith on many levels, but primarily because we who have called upon the name of the Lord for our salvation have become partakers. Whether you know it or not, we have become partakers of that future prophecy that has come to pass, and we become the partakers of it. And we have received this promise, and in, 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 in having received this promise of God's Holy Spirit being poured out upon all flesh, our flesh, it's important for us to understand these aspects of the Holy Spirit so that we might take advantage of all the blessings that God has made available to us through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Who here honestly today can raise their hand and says, say, I know how I've partaken now fully of all the blessings of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in my life. I know what that means. I don't think any of us do. And, and maybe different levels we have received that and we know that, but man, God's got a gift for us and he wants us to be able to take full advantage of this gift that he's given to us. Let me give you an example so that you can better understand what I hope that'll take place as a result of this study. Let's say I was to give each of you a gift. It's Christmas time, right? How about I give you a one-pound piece of rhodium? Anybody know what that is? No? Well, if I was to give you this gift, obviously not many of you, if any of you would know what it is or even what you could do with it. How many know that you are already probably in possession of some rhodium? The point is, is if you don't know what you've been given, what its value is, what its purpose and use is, then you will never know what to do with it, and more than likely you would not even want it, would you? But if I were to tell you this, that rhodium is the most rare and the most expensive metal on the planet, then would you not be a little bit more interested in this gift that i just given you? Would you not want to know if you were one of the ones who were already in possession of some of it? And the reason for why any of us would now be more interested in it is because we understand that rhodium is what? It's valuable, the most expensive and the most rare metal on the planet Earth. But it would still be a little of value to you if you were never told what rhodium is used for and what you could do with it. In fact, if you never found out how to capitalize on the value of your rhodium, you would probably lose interest in that gift and you would just set it aside, put it on a shelf. It would become a trinket. However, if I told you that rhodium is mainly used in your cars or trucks' catalytic converters which is designed to clean vehicle emissions. And if I was to give you a contact information of one of the eight manufacturers that would buy your one pound of rhodium for about $183,000, I think that all of you would be looking at your gift a little bit differently, would you not? Than when you had first received it. You guys are going to cut off your catalytic converters now. Don't do that. But it's in there. Rhodium. Sadly, many of us guys set aside the gift of the Holy Spirit because of these same kinds of reasons, the same kind of idea. Either we don't understand the value of God's gift of the Holy Spirit, how valuable it is, or we don't know the purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives, or we don't know how to personally take advantage 
of the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we have all received through the prophesied promises and through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And since the Holy Spirit is, I would say, and I think you would too, is a better and more valuable gift than all of the rhodium in the world, it's important for us to understand this gift that God has given to us. And so in Joel chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says this, prophesied promise, it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my maidservants and on my maids, on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. So why? I think that's always a good place to start. Why? Who has kids? Why? 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 Why is this prophecy of God to pour out His Holy Spirit such a big deal? And the manifold answer to this question is what I pray that we learn over these next four weeks. And one of the important things to take note of in regards to the prophecy that we just read found here in the book of Joel is that this prophecy has been fulfilled. Listen closely. It has been fulfilled in part, is currently being fulfilled, and will be completely fulfilled when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom upon the earth. And I don't have time to go into all the details of the three aspects of the fulfillment of this prophecy today, but I do want to point out in light of today's study topic that that the start of this prophecy came to pass, or the start of this prophecy coming to pass, that's probably the better word there to use, not having come to pass, but coming to pass, it began on the day of Pentecost with 120 of Jesus' disciples who were obediently waiting in Jerusalem. And we read of it in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It's historically documented there, and it says this. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, One sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. And the Spirit, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, what we know is when you read through that account, while we know that while these things were taking place, we're told that there were other men, devout men, Jewish men, who were on the streets below, who had gathered there to Jerusalem from all the other surrounding nations for the feast, this feast of Pentecost. And, and, and they could hear what was taking place in the upper room. In fact, they were shocked when they were told that they were amazed, astounded when they heard these 120 disciples of Jesus speaking with other tongues because at that time it says they could hear them speaking in the language of the nations that they were from. And this event caused some to be amazed, some to be perplexed, while others were told, mocked, and said, they're drunk. And yet Peter, who is now filled with the Holy Spirit at this time, boldly spoke up, and this is what he said. Listen, in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. 
And this is how we know that the fulfillment of that prophecy, this prophecy in Joel, became or started to become, uh, started to come to pass at this time. And he writes, and it's recorded, in, and he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. He says, it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is what Peter says. He says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on your sons and on your daughters, and they shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and on my female servants. And in those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And ever since that day, guys, ever since that day, the Holy Spirit of God is continuing to be poured out on everyone, anyone who will accept God's salvation that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So in light of this gift, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which had been prophesied about and, 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 and began to came to pass on the day of Pentecost, we need to understand what this means. We need to see the value and the purpose it affords to us if we're to partake in all that God has for us. In our church, if you want to put those verses up now, I, the, the screen will only hold three at a time that can be readable, so they're going to switch back and forth between the, these six different Scripture verses um, that are going to be on the screen. And so for the rest of the study, they're going to be up there and they're going to be switching back and forth. But in our church's statement of faith regarding the Holy Spirit, in case you didn't know, it says this, we believe in God, the Holy Spirit, who came forth from the Father and the Son to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and to regenerate, sanctify, and empower for ministry all who believe in Christ. We believe the Holy Spirit indwells every believer in Jesus Christ and that He is an abiding helper, a teacher, a guide. And we believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit and in the exercise of all the biblical gifts of the Spirit. And the fact of the matter is that we've obtained these truths and claim them as our beliefs because of what the written, guard, written, written Word of God tells us, specifically these scriptures here. Can you switch to the other one real quick? Did she leave? <laughs> okay. Um, just let it go. You can, you, can, you can see John chapter 14, verses 6 through 17. 16 and 17. John 14 Verses 26, John 16, verses 8 through 11. The other scriptures that are going to pop up is from Luke chapter 24, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and Titus chapter 3. And again, I think the, the, the Word of God needs to be the foundation for every doctrinal and theological statement that we claim as, a, as an individual or as a church. And so they're going to be up here and they're continuing to cycle through throughout the study. And as we seek to understand the Holy Spirit, we have to start with the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Doesn't that make sense? In other words, who or what is the Holy Spirit? And in our statement of faith, it says clearly we believe in God, the Holy Spirit. In our statement of faith, it says, it says that when we believe in God, the Holy Spirit, what that means, it means that the Holy Spirit is God. 
an equal part of the Trinity, which simply means God who is one God is three. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, equal in every way, but different in person. And if your mind's just like blowing up right now, I get it. It's a, I admit, it's a hard thing to understand. And it's even a harder thing to try to explain and teach. It's one of these mysteries of God. However, this is what God says he is. And perhaps I think a, a simple mathematical equation as an illustration might help you understand. Again, I will say that this is, this is a weak attempt to, with, with man who is finite to explain an infinite God. Nevertheless, for example, this mathematical example of the Trinity one times one times one is what? One. Similarly, God the Father X, God the Son X, God the Holy Spirit is one, one God. Another picture to help us understand the triune God is seen in the fact that we've been created, the Bible says, in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And we are also like God in the sense that we are a triune being meaning we are physical, right? We have flesh. We have bones. We are also spirit. What that means is we have thoughts and we have emotions. We feel, we think. And lastly, we're told as part of this triune makeup that we've been created in the image of God like we have a living soul. This is the eternal God-breathed part of us. And so we're a spirit, we're a soul, and we're a body. And this is what God's Word tells us that we are. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, it says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so without a doubt, God or the Holy Spirit is God. Holy Spirit is not a force that emanates from God. And I say this because a common misconception is the Holy Spirit is a force. Yet many scriptures speak of the person of the Holy Spirit. For example, or for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Right? You've heard that. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And you know what? You can't grieve a force. We can only grieve a person with feelings. Also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, it says that, that we can quench the Holy Spirit. Remember, we're warned again to not quench the Holy Spirit. And if we can quench the Holy Spirit, it means that he must have thoughts that are, that are wrapped around a plan and a will that we can ultimately disobey. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, we're disobeying the Holy Spirit's plan and will for our lives. And in Acts chapter 5, we see that we can also lie to the Holy Spirit. Like Ananias and Sapphira, and by the way, if you don't know that story, go read it because it didn't turn out so well for them for that. And if, we, and, and, and if we can lie to the Holy Spirit, that means that the Holy Spirit knows and discerns truth. And in addition to the Holy Spirit, or in addition to this, the Holy Spirit is first mentioned by name. Where do you think? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In the very beginning, it says where he acts. It says, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit is last mentioned by name as someone who speaks at the end of God's Word in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, where it says, and the Spirit and the bride say, come. 
And these passages are only two of many instances found in the Bible. Those are just bookends, if you will, where the Holy Spirit appears as a person speaking, acting, empowering, saving, feeling, and working on the behalf of God's people. So clearly, undeniably, the Bible portrays God the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead. Now in Scripture, we see that each person of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God Spirit, right? Each person of the Godhead has a specific work. And in accordance to our statement of faith and the words of God that we read to establish it, we see that the work of the Holy Spirit is diverse. Okay? For example, the Holy Spirit is our helper, our comforter, our teacher, the one who brings spiritual things to remembrance. He convicts of sin. He regenerates us to a, to a new spiritual birth. And the amazing thing about the work of the Holy Spirit is that, is that whatever the works might be, we, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches that we see the hand of God. We see the hand of God actively reaching into his creation into our lives and this in and of itself reveals that God is here that God is with us and I don't know about you but to see the good hand of God moving among us is an encouraging thing remember King David he wrote in Psalm 27 of this very same thing and he said I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living as we move on to the next aspects of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling, if you will, now outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is spoken of here in Joel, we need to understand that the Holy Spirit manifests Himself in our lives in three different ways. Meaning the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. The Holy Spirit comes to be inside of us. And also He comes upon us. He comes upon us. And, and, and I want to I go through this this morning and offer some clarity to these things and bring Scripture into the conversation so that you see where God's Word declares these things. The Holy Spirit coming alongside us. Holy Spirit comes to be inside of us and Holy Spirit comes upon us. So before regeneration, let's start there. Before we entered into relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, right? through faith in the work and in the person of Jesus, before we were born again, if you will, before regeneration is when the Holy Spirit comes alongside a person. And he does so, the Bible says, to convict them, to convict us at that time, convict the world of sin and unrighteousness, and to lead them into a relationship with God. And in your mind, that coming alongside paints a visual picture. You know, all of us have that story of our conversion, but afterwards we go, man, I just remember, I can look back now and see where God was with me. Here, and here, and here. And God was intervening in our lives, working in our lives, unbeknownst to us, coming alongside us, so whispering in our ear, if you will, into our hearts, into our minds, drawing us into a relationship 
so that we could receive new life. Coming alongside a person. Leading us into relationship with God. And then when a person surrenders their life to God, when they respond to the, to the coming alongside, to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when then a person then responds and surrenders their life to God through faith and an acceptance of the person and the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, it, we're told, then comes to dwell, to indwell, to live inside of man to live with them. And lastly, we know that the Holy Spirit will also come upon a believer. Three different instances coming alongside, coming to be in us. And then also, the Bible says, coming upon the believer, which is often referred to. <coughs> Here, this might, this might make some people to cringe a little bit, but that's okay. It's often referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and I say that that way, preface that with some cringing, because I think that, that in people's ignorance and misunderstanding of what the Scriptures teach us in regards to the Holy Spirit as they step out, I think sometimes in faith, maybe wrongly and, and not in accordance. And, and like Paul says at times, if we're doing this not in the right way, where we're being you know, baptized of the Holy Spirit and gifts of the Holy Spirit are being manifested in our lives, I know I'm stepping way ahead from all their studies, but Paul says, man, people are going to look at us and say, you're crazy. What's the matter with you? You lost your mind. And, and, and God's still a God of order. He does things decently. The Bible tells us that the prophet, uh, that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, meaning that the Holy Spirit is, is still um, upon that indwelling that we're talking about and the empowering, we still have free will to be exercised. And, and, and sometimes we're like, I wish that wasn't the case because my free will gets me in trouble more times than not. But clearly, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer. And it's referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, Holy Spirit. and when we look at Scripture, we see that this can happen at the time of regeneration with the, the time that the, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. Or the Bible says also and teaches as well that the, the coming upon of the Holy Spirit upon a believer, that baptism of the Holy Spirit can happen anytime after the, the regeneration. And the coming upon that follows this is also a continual thing. And it can and will happen when it, is, when it is asked for. It's like we pray, God, I need your help. I need your power. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your love. All of these things is manifested in our lives to become out of us. That's God's Spirit. We're praying and going, God, baptize me, if you will, with your Holy Spirit so that, that, that you who are in me may be even known through me to those around me. I need you here. I need you now. In the Greek language, there are three different prepositions that are kind of tied to everything that we just read that are used to identify the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, specifically in relationship, if you will, I'll put it this way, to the three locations that we're talking about, right? Alongside inside and upon, okay? And we know that the Old Testament, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, uh, some Aramaic, and, and, and I want to get into all the, the semantics of that, but primarily the Greek language. And, and when we look at the biblical um, uh, foundation for why we believe these things, these three Greek words 
are, are, are important, these three Greek prepositions. And you may have heard this before, but I'm going to try to break them down for you this morning. The first word is the word para. It's a preposition in the Greek, and what it means is with us, para, with us. There's also the word en, E-N, and it simply means in us. It's the preposition to describe en, in. And lastly, there is the Greek preposition epe, and you've probably heard that before too, epe, which means upon. Para, en, and epe. God with us, para, refers to the Holy Spirit, taking a position next to a person, like we said, in order to convict of sin and righteousness and to show us our need for a Savior by pointing us to Jesus Christ. This happens prior to salvation, and it is the means by which God draws men and women into a love relationship with him. And I'm sure all of us remember that time in our life, like I said before, when we were not following after God. Remember those times when God came alongside us, when we were convicted of our sin, and he was working in us to draw us to him. Those times when God, God Holy Spirit, gently and sometimes not so gently, for some of us that are a little more stubborn than others, um, nudged us down a path that brought us to the cross, that brought us to our knees. A biblical, biblical example of this, this preposition being used in Scripture to, to give us an idea of what I'm talking about, about the Holy Spirit coming alongside a person, is found in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, where Jesus said this, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells para with you, he says here. You know him because he dwells with you and will be, here's what Jesus says, will be in you. And he says, you know him right now because he's with you. He's para alongside you. In the last word of verse 17 where he says, we'll be in you, as we, we see that, that at the end of, of, of Jesus' words, this is where that other Greek preposition is used, and it's the word in. And it tells of the Holy Spirit who was once walking alongside a person. In this instance, Jesus' disciples would eventually come to live in them. And we know that was true on the day of... Nope. <laughs> I tricked you. I'll get to it in just a minute. John chapter 20, you can look ahead and turn there. But... Um, we see that Jesus is speaking of a... Jesus is with his disciples in this account. He's not yet died. He's not yet ascended. But he says, don't worry. He'll be in you. And remember, Jesus said, he said, don't be sad. I got to go away. But don't be sad because it's better for you because I leave because one is coming. The Holy Spirit. I'm not going to leave you alone. An orphan. And so God was with his disciples when Jesus, who was God, walked on the earth, but now, but, but God had not been in them like they were promised. And this would, ha- this would not happen until Jesus had died and the debt for sin was paid. And it was only after Jesus' resurrection through the, uh, Jesus' resurrection that God through the Holy Spirit could come to be in them. And think about that. You know, God dwells within a, a newly regenerated person, not until. Not until, and that could not happen until Christ died. 
Men could not be regenerated until Christ died on the cross and paid for our sins. It was only after Jesus' resurrection that this happened. And in John chapter 20, it records this event. Jesus already said, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's with you, but he's going to come, he's going to be in you. And, and after Jesus' resurrection, it tells us that the disciples had the Holy Spirit come in them. You remember this now probably in verses 21 and 22 when Jesus said to him again, after he is resurrected, he appears to him, he said, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he did what? He breathed upon him, on them, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And that breathing is this example of <gasps> taking it in. Jesus breathed and they breathed and they, they took it in. And of course, that was not like, it wasn't some magic trick or anything, but it was the moment by which God the Holy Spirit came to indwell the disciples. They had, Jesus said, he's been with you and he's going to be in you. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. He came in, 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 in John chapter 20, he says, and he breathed on him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So God had been with the disciples through, through Jesus, like God had been with us, drawing, drawing into a relationship with him. Then Jesus breathed on the disciples, and, and God, Holy Spirit, came to be with them, just like God, the Holy Spirit, had come to live inside of them. Uh, to, so just like God, the Holy Spirit, came to live inside of us, rather, after we repented of our sins, after we turned our lives over to him. Specifically, it's the event that we refer to as a new birth, right? Being born again. It's speaking of a spiritual birth, a new birth. How? Because God's inside of us, giving us a new heart, giving us a new nature. His heart, His nature. And that's the awesome thing about it. Think about it. Who here kept the laws and commands of God or even desired to do so before you gave your life to Christ? Oh, I see none of you. And, and, and that's the problem with the children of Israel. And you look at this prophecy, they're in disobedience for year after year after year after year, up and down, up and down. God's chosen people, and God said, okay, obviously you need some help. And God knew this from the beginning. He said, but there's coming a time. I'm going to bring you back. After these things, I'm going to, I'm going to bring, bring a gift to you, the Holy Spirit. Giving men not only a new nature, but now the access to the power of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to be able to resist sin, to choose to do good. The Bible says that there's no good in us apart from, from God. That our heart is evil and wicked, and what do we need? We need a new heart. That's what regeneration is, where God gives us a new heart, a new spirit, His spirit, which is also prophesied it's a prophesied promise that we also read of in the book of Ezekiel. You can turn there if you want. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 28. Jesus said this, or, or excuse me, God through, through Ezekiel said this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Why? Because we couldn't do it before. We needed something valuable, something precious, something more than what we had on our own. God's Spirit, so that we might walk in His statutes and that we might keep His judgments and do them. 
And then what he says to his people specifically, as we've been partakers of this promise, as we've been adopted in through our faith in Jesus Christ, even though we're Gentiles, but Jesus, or God was speaking to his people, and he said, he said, and then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Lastly, this third emphasis on um, the location of the Holy Spirit, right, is the word epe, God upon us. And this event is what is recorded in Acts chapter 2. So we have God alongside of us, God within us, and then God upon us. That is what is specifically being prophesied about Keeping context in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. The outpouring of God's Spirit. What is it? It's what empowers a person to do mighty things in the name of God. And this is, this is the power. It's this dunamis is the, the word that's used there. This power of God. It's dynamite. It's the Greek word dunamis. It ignites us. It strengthens us. It emboldens us to live in such a way that our lives reflect Jesus and draw people to God. Now, most people are okay. Most believers are okay with, with God with us, right? He's our friend. He walks with us. And I think even for the most part, Christians, you know, we get it and we're, we, we understand and are, 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 are grateful for God in us where we have been given a new nature, a new spirit, where we are no longer the people we used to be, you know, and it's a process, right? God's still working out the kinks in us, and it says he'll be faithful to do so. He's the author and finisher, and the means by which this takes place is God's spirit in us. But I think the whole God upon us freaks people out. And equally, some, some wrongly believe that God upon, upon us means that you know, you're going to be made to act in some kind of freaky way. But this is not the case. As the Bible teaches, this, the Spirit of God is subject, like I said, is subject to us. Meaning God won't make us act in any way or do anything that we don't want to do. However, let me say that a Christian who is filled, a believer who is filled, a son or a daughter of God who is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible makes this clear, it's a glorious thing. When we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, it's a glorious thing. And what do I mean by that? It, 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 it glorifies God. It magnifies God. It, 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 and, and we're just the, the, the vessel at that point by which you know, we, we talk about being broken vessels or we're being, being poured upon and overpoured and, and filled to the top so that whatever God's pouring into our lives is going out into the lives of people around us and people see God. And a life that a spirit-filled Christian lives will always glorify God. However, the biblical purpose and the reasons given to us for the Holy Spirit upon us is not to go around, and I'm just going to say it, it's not to go around barking like a dog. And yes, that has been done in the name of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and other 
kinds of things that have, do not glorify God at all. Things that don't glorify God. Things that people look at and go, I want nothing to do with your God if that's what your God is like. Your, your God wants to, to be poured out upon you so, that you can, so he can, you can go around barking like a dog. Thanks, no thanks. Uh, you know, Roaring like a lion. That has happened too. I mean, weird kinds of things that, that men have done in, in, in the name of the Holy Spirit being poured out of them. Other things that... that um, um, people believe that I don't want to get into too much, but like we hear, to, we read here in Ezekiel, you know, what is the main thing? What is the real thing? And and it's a power given to us so that we can walk according to God's ways. Man, who needs that? I need that. Who struggles? I struggle. I'm sure you do too with walking in God's ways. The spirit is strong. The Bible says the flesh is weak. And there's temptations in this world. But now we're not in bondage, the Bible says, to our sin. And sin or sin, we're still sinners. We still sin. But we have, the, we have access to the most valuable and greatest thing ever given to man. The Holy Spirit of God. To be able to equip us, to empower us. So that we can walk according to God's ways. And, and to God's standards, as it says in verse 8 of Ezekiel, that we can ultimately be a witness. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to just close here because the next part of this is just going to be too long, and I don't want to do that. And we're, we're, we're actually closer to the time than I thought we'd be. So if the worship team wants to come up, we're going to end with this. The purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that outpouring of God's Spirit, right? And you can't, just so you know, there's a process. You can't, you can't skip some of the steps here. God, if, you're, if you've not given your life to Christ right now, know the Holy Spirit's been walking alongside you, leading you to this moment, to this place, drawing you unto Him, wanting to make you new in Him through God dwelling in you. But God won't do that unless you ask. If you've come to believe that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God who died on the cross for your sins so that your sins may be forgiven, so that you too may have life, that you too may live once this life is over, then God will gladly come to be inside of you. And then he'll come upon you. And all of these things working together is something that will bring a change upon you that you've never experienced ever before. People will look at you and go, what's the matter with you? You're different. And you won't even be trying. It'll just happen. You'll be changed. And the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to equip the believer with the power of God's Spirit for service. And that's ultimately the completion of it. God's called us to be his servants. He's our Lord. He's our master. He paid for his, our lives. He bought our lives. He's the propitiation, the payment. And he paid for us. He redeemed us. And when we come to faith, we say we surrender our lives to him. No longer my will be done, but your will. Not long, no longer my plans, but your plans. And he calls us into service to serve him. He's got a plan and a purpose for, this earth, for the, this earth, for the people on this earth, for those we love, those we know, for those who we do not yet know. And God says, I'm going to equip you for my service. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through a believer's life, ultimately to touch those around them. I don't want, I don't, I don't want you guys, I, I, I don't want you to see me. I don't want you to hear me. I don't want my life to be what affects your life. I want God in me to be 
what you see, what you hear. Sean, apart from God, is not a good dude. It's not. There's no good in me apart from Christ. No good in me apart from Holy Spirit, a new heart, a new nature. And receiving of the baptism of the Holy Spirit can happen many different ways with no specific way, but only after repentance and acceptance of Jesus Christ as the Lord. And that, I'll leave it there because that'll set the stage for what we'll do next week. Father, thank you, God, for this foundation, Lord, these scriptures. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to build upon them as we go forward and and see, Lord, um, every aspect of the gift of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us that can be made available to our lives, Lord, so that we may walk as new creations in you, Lord, so that the world may see and know who you are, Lord, so that the fruit the love, the joy, the peace, the goodness, the kindness, the faithfulness, the self-control, Lord, might be um, um, what, we, what people see us now as. Lord, that that would be um, born or brought forth um, in our lives. And then ultimately, Lord, also that the, gift, the gifts that you give to us through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Lord, the empowerment, Lord, to be... Um, <laughs> a useful vessel in your hands, Lord, that would, that would be born forth through us as well. Lord, we know that um, you're com- you brought, you've given us the Holy Spirit as a, as a comforter, as a guide, and um, Lord, we ask that you would do that in these next weeks, that you would comfort us, that you would guide us, Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, and you would reveal truth to us and open up our hearts and our minds to you. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand?